Welcome to IVF Tales, a podcast hoping to make the world of fertility treatment less lonely. We want to start conversations about different fertility journeys to empower your decisions and build a community that understands. Each week we will speak to someone whose journey to having a child has taken a little bit more than a few vodka cruises. We are your hosts, Tiffany and Amy. In today's episode, we're talking to Sam and Rob, who are a couple originally from Melbourne but are currently in Pittsburgh. Um, so they're having a baby via surrogacy over there and have been affected by coronavirus and everything that's happening in the world right now. Um, mm-hmm. I think we should probably add also that they are a same-sex couple. Um and sort of they are really sort of wealth of knowledge on um, surrogacy, so the difference between commercial and altruistic. They also chat about that. Um, yeah. yeah. I think um, it was an emotional one for both of us as well. Yeah. Um, and they were very open and honest about everything that they've experienced in this journey. And, you know, I think my biggest takeaway from their interview is that regardless of what type of couple you are, if you're, you know, a single parent by choice, all of these different ways to make a family, the feelings are the same. You still have those highs, you still have those lows, um, you've still got the same anxiety regardless. And that, mm-hmm. you know, if you are in a couple or if you're by yourself, you're having hard conversations and hard thoughts about, you know, all of these different things that you wouldn't necessarily come across if you were just able to fall pregnant naturally with a mum and a dad and mm-hmm. you know, that stereotypical vision Yeah, what that involves. Yeah, I think I got really emotional too because, um, as I was saying off mic earlier, that um, – I lived with a couple of people who were gay and I had this very, um, I don't know, like this big realisation probably when I was about 19, which I think is a bit late for some people, but I still had it, um, that just, you know, as kids we're told that we're going to grow up and have families and, you know, we're going to meet someone, we're going to get married and then we're going to have a baby and sort of that's the right way to do things. And I say that, you know, with air quotations. Um, And just for people whose sexuality or sexual orientation doesn't fit that box, for them to have that realisation that their life may not look like that. And I had that realisation that their their life won't look like mine. And back then that was when, you know, same-sex marriage wasn't even legal, wasn't even on the cards. Um, so, and I think surrogacy was still illegal in Australia altogether. Um, so that was a really emotional aspect for me because Sam and Rob talk about that process, um, you know, of realising their sexuality and and sort of, you know, not really even thinking about having a family, not even thinking that it was even possible. Um, So I think that sort of really just hit a note for me because I just – I think about that being my baby now. You know, do you think like that, Tiff? Like now that, you know, you've got Harriet and – because I just think if that was Junie, like that would just break my heart. Yeah, like I think – I've had those thoughts like with all of the kids in our lives that have been really close to us at different stages. Like, mm-hmm. 
and just think about what their future looks like and that empathy mm-hmm. of them trying to find who they are and what they're going to be like. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I think um, at the end of the day, like ultimately – you just want everyone to have equal opportunity mm-hmm. um, and equal access to everything that you have equal access to, you know. Um, and I think this is like a rabbit hole that we could go down and talk about all day. <laughs> um, but just, yeah, this whole and, you know, this whole in um, interview that we did with these guys, I feel like I've learned so much about the process of surrogacy and, um, particularly for their emotional their emotional journey that they've been on to becoming parents and things like that. Um, oh, they also um, so their baby's due at the end of May, and th- so they also discuss how the coronavirus has affected their, um, you know, uh, I don't know, travel to the to America, and um, yeah, they've had to go over earlier, and just the complications around the coronavirus, the pandemic. Yeah. And all the unknown um, that that brings as well for them, which is hard. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would really love to check back in with them, obviously, once they're settled back in um, with their little baby and they're, they're adjusting to becoming new parents, but just to check in and see how it all went for them. So hopefully we can, you know, do that. Um, but uh, we hope you enjoy listening to today's episode. Thanks for joining us on IVF Tales today, Sam and Rob. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> All the way from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, how are you guys going? Yeah, we're good. A bit isolated, but good. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you guys want to get started introducing yourselves, telling us, you know, where, like, where you're usually located and, um, like, who's in your family? Yeah, cool. Uh, I might start so down here. Um, so we are originally from Melbourne um, and we've made the journey over to Pittsburgh just over five weeks ago now, um, having kind of had to escape the current pandemic that the whole world is facing into um, to be in America with our child. So um, we have a little girl on the way and she's doing um, exactly one month from now. So. Uh, Melbourne's home for us. We live uh, kind of in a city, so in Brunswick, um, in a home that we've, we've just built. Um, and I'm Rob. I thought I'd better speak just in case you think I'm new. Um, but yeah, <laughs> everything Sam said, um, from Melbourne, we made the journey over here about five weeks ago. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we are at the moment. I guess a, a, a little bit of background into who we are. So. Um, my background is Lebanese. I was born in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, and, and migrated to Australia when I was five years old. So, um, have always lived in Melbourne. I think I can comfortably say I'm a Melbourneian through and through. Um, I guess my background is probably not as spicy as Sam's. Um, I'm originally from Adelaide, um, so born and bred uh, in a probably a country town just about an hour outside of uh, the capital. Um, and I moved over to Melbourne, um, becoming up about five years now. Um, and uh, it's been an amazing move. Um, but, yeah, now Melbourne's home for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I love it. It's, um, it's an amazing place. So that's, that's me. Um, my family are all back in Adelaide still. So um, I've 
pretty well um, assimilated into Sam's Lebanese family. Um, she's there, my, my second family back in uh, Melbourne. Yeah, I guess we can uh, thank Rob's move to Melbourne for our, our love story, if you like. Um, so we both work in the finance sector um, and yeah, we're kind of fortunate enough to cross paths through work and uh, have been together, I've lost track now, I think four years. It feels like a lifetime, but yeah, I think it's only four years. Yeah. Before, yeah, coming up. I think you forget everything once you know you're having a child or you're starting a family. The, the kind of the, the backstory is irrelevant now. There's no time to count, really. Yeah. Lovely. Well, did you guys want to get us started with your fertility journey? So when you decided to sort of, you know, start your family and, and how you chose the surrogacy process? Yeah, well, I think maybe I'll talk a little bit about my background um, and, you know, having a family and what I had thought and then maybe Sam can talk about his because it's a little bit different to mine. I think for me, um, coming out only a few years ago um, and then entering into a same-sex relationship, I think I'd always wanted a family but I, I didn't think that it was probably on the agenda um, and I think you're, you're worrying and thinking about so many other things when you, you're coming out of the closet um, that, you know, family and having a baby and you probably don't even – think about it, you know, let alone meeting the right person who um, you want to start that journey and have a family with. So I think for me, I'd, I've always wanted to have a family, whether it was going to be a reality or not, was probably something I'd, I hadn't really considered much more than just the idea. Um, so I think, you, you know, and the surrogacy process that we've gone on together, I think once you maybe hear a bit of Sam's and we can take you through that. But yeah, for me, I, I mean, I've been really... Um, I feel really blessed to have been able to found, find a partner and then start this journey because, um, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, heterosexual or homosexual, I think um, sometimes, you know, it, it's hard to know where it starts. Yeah, um, I definitely can, you know, relate to, to Rob's story. Um, I'm probably a little bit more advanced in terms of the, the process of having a family. I've been researching um, kind of options for probably well over a decade now. So have been looking into surrogacy, how it works, costs, um, which countries are kind of good to go through, what's available in Australia. Um, we've considered adoption as well. And um, it's it's a lot to take in. And I think the, the, the process itself um, is probably the most daunting thing. And it's not until we made that decision to to sign the dotted line, if you like, that it finally became real because there are so many horror stories and um, kind of even in the most recent years around some of the countries that have stopped international surrogacy just because of the way that um, it was being commercialised um, was hard for us. So we officially started, um, I think, looking into surrogacy. It was a pretty quick decision I it think. happened quickly I think I mean we were talking about it before and um I I can't even remember when we started talking about it it just kind of happened organically and then the process started and, and it started to snowball from there I, I when did we start the process originally it would have been in late 2018 um mm. we started looking into um altruistic surrogacy which is essentially um the birth through um, within Australia, 
the birth where there's no compensation to a surrogate. Um, and so in order to kind of go down that path, you need to have um, someone who's willing to carry a child for you, and that's a significant ask. Um, but also, obviously, being both male, needed to find an egg donor. Um, so we started looking at the egg donor options in Australia, and um, surprisingly, it's a four-year wait um, in Melbourne to, to get an egg donor. Um, so that was something mm. that, uh, apart from not having a surrogate who or someone who would be able to carry a child for us, to wait four years to to go through that egg donor process was probably just a little bit too long for us. Um, we wanted to start a family sooner rather than later. Um, similarly with adoption, um, it kind of was almost impossible to find adequate information or resources or support within Australia to be able to assist us in understanding what the adoption process was. Um, and that's essentially how we got to international surrogacy. So we started looking at some options um, in Mexico was kind of where we first started. Um, and it's a really big decision, not just to start a family, but a big financial decision to, you know, entrust people you don't know with uh, all this money and, you know, are they legitimate um, organisations? Or a Nigerian of- prince or, you know, you just worry when you're sending that kind of lump sum overseas and you don't know who it's going to, you've got to have a, a lot of faith, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we came across a, a surrogacy agency here in the US um, and we had a, a Skype meeting with them in January 2019. Um, and I just remember it was a Sunday for us, I think it was Saturday morning in the US and the directors um, were the ones who got on the Skype call to take us through the whole process. And we kind of just instantly knew after that conversation that that was the agency for us. Um, it was a little bit more expensive than what we had initially thought it would cost. But I think the the passion that came through from them and just the the fact that they were calling us on a Saturday um, meant so much from us. They were dialing in from their homes and um, they had both, both the directors had gone through a surrogacy journey themselves. And I think that just being able to share that story with us um, meant a lot. And I reckon it would have been less than two weeks that we essentially made a decision to to sign up with them and um and start that process and it kind of looking back now is quite daunting that we had gone from not knowing what the whole process was and you know, how do you trust um trust people with with this kind of next step of your life to signing on with an agency and um here we are now 12 months just over 12 months later um, expecting the birth of our child. So that's kind of how we started. I was going to say, you'd say I can talk, Sam, but seriously, you, you, once you get going, you're passionate. Um, I was going to say, I remember with Circle Surrogacy, um, they said, we just want to put a baby in your arms and that's our dream. And I remember thinking that they were just so professional and the whole experience, they just gave us such confidence that they were going to be there with us the whole way through and they really um, were supportive. I think for me, they, they were a no-brainer. You know, you it's a it's a big decision to have a family and have a baby, but you want to have that trust and you want to have that relationship where you, you know that you're in good hands. And I certainly felt like that with them. Um, and, you know, I think if I think back to when we started our surrogacy journey, I think the turning point 
for us or maybe for me certainly was when um, we had the legalization of same-sex marriage in Australia which wasn't long ago and I think after that we knew that we were going to be able to have a baby and it be recognized as being both of ours um, you know both being the dads where as previously that might not have been the case for a number of countries recognizing um, our unionship so you know that I think really started was probably the catalyst that started it and then it just grew organically from there but you know there's so many different points along the journey over the last what two years that I think have pointed us in this direction yeah and you know the making that decision in hindsight we thought was the hardest part of the the whole um, the journey for us what came next around the the process of actually conceiving this child was probably even harder um, because we then had to start, um, you know, all the appointments for our, our sperm analysis. We had to make sure that we were actually fit um, to go down this path. And um, I think, you know, for me reflecting, if you're naturally conceiving a child, it's kind of, you know, a couple of drinks sometimes and you know, you have a child. For us, it's, you know, we, we definitely found out a lot more about ourselves than we um, didn't know before. And I think you question things like, you know, is my is my sperm good enough? Is, the, is there mobility there to actually conceive a child? Um, and then kind of I did mine and then Rob did his and we're comparing and kind of having a look at, you know, who's is better? You know, is there a better? Um, I know the doctor that I visited, in Melbourne, when I went to get my results, was just like, oh, here you go, here, here it is. And I was kind of asking, can you talk to me a little bit about what this means? There's just a whole lot of, you know, millions of numbers here. Um, and he's like, just Google it. It's pretty self-explanatory. So having to kind of go through and understand a lot of that ourselves um, put us kind of in a really good place when we started to go through the next parts of the journey to, to research and understand more about what to expect. Oh, definitely. It is so humbling, especially, you know, um, when you, Sam's much more researched than I am about the whole process and all of the pre kind of requirements that you need to go through to, you know, find out, you know, are you suitable and, you know, genetically and, you know, biologically. I think you definitely leave your ego at the door when you go to the, um, the clinics and you don't really know where to go and you're wandering around and you don't really want to go into any of the rooms where you, you know, you hope that you're not going to step into something that you shouldn't be. So I think, um, yeah, look, it's, it's, there's so many things that I think we just kind of had to figure out along the way. Um, and the, the information, you know, is limited. So you really do need to find something that's relevant. We, we spoke to a number of people. I mean, the agency was fantastic, but um, yeah, sometimes you just have to figure it out yourself. The clinics, though, they were certainly daunting. I remember thinking back on those. Yeah, and uh, kind of I know we signed on to with our surrogate agency uh, in January 2019 and things just started to move really quickly from there. By March that year, so two months later, um, we were already in the US. We'd, we'd um, signed up with an IVF clinic, a fertility clinic um, in Los Angeles. So um, after, and it kind of, again, that whole trust around not, being able to speak to people face to face and a lot of it was kind of putting trust in these clinics and these doctors and individuals that we were probably speaking to once twice if we were lucky and then having to make the decision quite mm. quickly um so we flew over to to la and um kind of had to had to leave a semen sample um for them and um 
that's I think when it started to become real that the kind of the, the journey had moved from just signing a contract to now actually starting to um, get one step closer to to I guess having embryos and then that next step of having a child. Um, we found our egg donor. So why why did you choose LA, the, the fertility clinic in LA, if you've ended up in Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, we were recommended through our surrogacy agency, um, Dr. Sahakian, um, who's a you know a really well um, renowned um, fertility doctor in um, LA and Beverly Hills. Um, and I think because um, he came so highly recommended and we did a little bit of research online as well, I think that's why we decided to go with him. We, we wanted to, you know, to, like we've talked about, it's a big financial investment and I'm sure it is for a lot of people, but, you know, you want to go with someone who's a professional that you can have trust in. We really gelled with him well on the phone. We had faith that he knew what he was talking about and that he, we certainly could trust his recommendations and expertise. So I think that's why we made the decision. I mean, um, there's a financial element of, you know, having the fertility clinic in on one side of the country on the West Coast and um, our surrogate almost on the East Coast. But at the same time, we kind of thought we want to have the best chance of having a baby and, um, and of getting a successful embryo, embryo transplant. So that was, I think, part of the decision. Yeah, we spoke to a few uh, fertility clinics in the US um, and it again came down to that trust factor. The clinic that we did sign on with um, was really proactive in contacting us, proactive in understanding exactly where we were at in our process, providing additional support and resources. Um, I know another clinic that we looked at, which was on the East Coast, um, it just felt really hard to to land an appointment um, and I think that this is such a um, you know a massive process in in the in anyone's IVF journey that you want a, cl a fertility clinic that actually wants to talk to you and um, for that reason we decided to go with the clinic that we did um, just because of their ability to make us feel comfortable um, in surrogacy unfortunately you don't know where your surrogate is going to be um, and mm -hmm. so for us I I don't look at it as unfortunate because we have such a fantastic relationship with our surrogate, um, but she happens to be based on the East Coast and our fertility clinic was on the West Coast. Um, but I guess the positive is that, you know, it's a couple of visits over to the fertility clinic and from there, um, wherever the surrogate, surrogate lives um, is kind of irrelevant. Okay. Thank you for that. That's just, yeah, I found that really interesting. So, yeah. No worries. Um, <laughs> So we signed up uh, an egg donor or kind of our fertility, our fertility doctor referred to it as a, a Tinder date online. So just get a bottle of wine, some cheese and go through a list of potential egg donors. It's quite morbid when you think about it, but it is a bit like that. Yeah, so uh, we, we found an egg donor um, probably early May and, again, a lot of the – um, the stigma I think around surrogacy is that you're playing God and you kind of are choosing the the best genes or you're kind of being quite shallow in terms of what you're looking for. Um, that was quite the opposite for us. We actually spoke to our egg donor. So after we chose her based on characteristics and um, a story that she had provided, we had a, 
a Skype conversation. We really kind of uh, wanted to understand more about her as an individual and not so much kind of what she looked like. I mean, you know, I think um, for us, the amount of information you get provided in those um, profiles for um, prospective egg donors, there is so much information that you probably get that, you, you know, you don't need to know um, or you, you probably do. But I think, you know, sometimes too much information is is not a good thing um, because you can start debating the various, you know, how's that going to gel with my genes or how's that, you know, what's what's that going to turn out like? And I think, you know, for us, when we, we landed on our egg donor, part of it that we were really um, sold on was that the egg donor, um, you know, wanted um, to have, a potential relationship in the future and I think in the spirit of transparency we were certainly wanting uh, an egg donor that you know wanted not to necessarily have to be involved with our um, our child but at least you know if there was any medical um, issues in the future that they would be able to be contacted or you know even just to know that they were um, able to help um, us have uh, a family or, or start our journey. So I think that was really important when we decided. Um, but yeah, the, the profiles are a really interesting thing. And I, I think we were really lucky when we were able to gel with our egg donor. And I think we got a really good vibe over Skype. I mean, it is a bit hard. It's a really awkward conversation. I remember um, the Skype call, you, you kind of, it's like going on a blind date. And then, um, you know, it's pretty serious. And you're kind of up trying to get the information you need and trying to ask things that you might not normally ask on a first date. But um, yeah, look, we were really lucky with our egg donor in, in the whole process, I think. Yeah. About the same time that we um, decided to go forward with our egg donor, we we got back our semen analysis and kind of going back to that earlier point about you know so much more about yourself um, going through this process. We, we got reports from the fertility clinic about um, potential gene defects and um, potential issues that might arise. And, you know, I just remember sitting back and going, holy moly, I'm 34 and this one test is telling me that I might potentially be more receptive to getting something in the um, in my later years. Uh, was a wake-up call, but kind of also something that made us go, holy moly, kind of if we were just conceiving this child, um Ignorance is bliss, I reckon, yeah, sometimes. naturally. Just not knowing. You wouldn't know all this stuff. Yeah. Yep. Fertility treatments like that, it's really sort of shocking. And I remember the, the tests, I don't, I don't know from your perspective, but from our perspective, when we went through fertility treatment, those genetic tests were so expensive. They were like eight, $900. And it's kind of like I felt this responsibility to our potential child to, to know that information. But it is really scary because it's like I'm mortal. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to know probably at that time. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, if it was just a natural conception, you would you just go on about. You have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The cost is significant, and the information is so well laid out. You, you do feel obligated to go through it all in uh, painstaking detail, and then questioning your mortality after that. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I it's calling, crazy. I calling my mum after I got the report <laughs> to say, you know, I've noticed that you've had these issues in the past, and I think you've passed them on to me, and you know. But our egg donor, um, things went really well with the egg retrieval that we had. And um, again, not knowing too much about what to expect or what 
what we needed. Um, our egg donor actually produced 28 eggs um, on the egg retrieval. And yeah, um, when we look and kind of speak to other people now that are going through um, their own process or going through um, a similar process to us, 28 is a, what, what we've been told a really fantastic um, result. Um, and what we ended up with, you kind of thank, you know, the stars that we started off with 28 because by the time we were ready to um, mix the sperm with the um, the eggs, we were down to 20, I believe. Um, and so obviously both wanting to have um, biological children, we decided to split the eggs down the middle. So we had 10 eggs each. Um, when they were... Um, when the sperm was kind of uh, mixed with the, the eggs and we got our embryos, we ended up with, I had six um, viable embryos and, and Rob had four. So four or five? No, nah, other way around. I think, I think I had five and you had four. Four good ones, but yeah. I had six in total. Yeah, yeah. so I yeah. had six, Rob had five. So we had 11 embryos from 28 eggs. Um, and then you kind of go... That's you know that's a, a massive drop. If we had only produced you know half the number of eggs, if the egg donor only produced half the number of eggs from the start, then you know we might have only had one or two embryos each. So um, by the end of it, we had eleven embryos. Um, I had six in total. Four were um, strong, and two were what they referred to as mosaic. So um, there was a chromosomal. Uh, defect I think but they can't guarantee what what it might be um and can I just say like I think we've been so incredibly lucky throughout this whole process you know the volume of eggs that we were able to retrieve and then the viability of them you know that's we've been really fortunate I I you know we talk about the numbers now and I think man if we only had one or two eggs I could just imagine the feeling of other people going through this process that the pressure that those eggs to be you know to be successful you know, how much is riding on those. So, you know, I think, um, yeah, like we, we talk the numbers, but we, we're so fortunate really throughout the whole process to have gotten that volume and then to have such successful transfers. Um, yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're really lucky about, for that reason. I agree. And I think because we're not, we're not producing the eggs that we had such a, a strong, um, I guess, emphasis on our egg donor that if it, if, if things didn't go right with the egg retrieval, what was our plan B? I don't think we had a plan B and you kind of, your heart is set on this person. You're, you've started to build a relationship. Um, you don't want to put pressure on them because it's such a, it's, it's such a um, kind of, it's a journey for them as well to, to go through and it takes its toll physically. Um, but to have 11 and kind of, we've, we've spoken a lot about the, knowing so much more you, you got 11 um embryos now and again they're graded and we started off with you know an a plus egg right down to a i think a d um plus the two that were a little bit unknown um so that from there we then had our once we had our embryos we made a decision that um we always wanted to go with our strongest embryo um for the um, once we found a surrogate, just because um, we honestly did not care whose child biologically it was. We just wanted to start off with the, the highest chance of being able to you know, have a child. And we thought that the strongest egg 
uh, the strongest embryo, sorry, would would give us that. Um, we, our surrogate at the moment that we um, matched with was our third surrogate that was presented to us. So, again, another um, journey, another kind of um, you know roller coaster of emotions and highs and lows when we were getting matched. Um, so we started um, just before we had our embryos, our first surrogate. Um, was presented to us and we were really excited. I think, you know, it was probably in hindsight um, a, a rational decision from our perspective. We kind of were really eager to have a child and we were really eager for this to, to start as soon as possible that we just said yes straight away and um, kind of thought, yeah, perfect. This is the right surrogate for us. And then um, on the 11th hour, she decided to um, pull out of the agency and kind of wasn't comfortable being a surrogate anymore so that was probably the first time in the whole journey so kind of in that five month window that I've probably I, I felt disappointed um everything had gone to plan I think that we probably got a little bit comfortable with things moving um you know at a, at a good pace um that when we got that first um kind of something not wrong but kind of something wasn't going to plan um I definitely needed a moment to just sit back and reflect and, and kind of think about what was what was going to come next. I think part of it is that you you get so excited with things and you start imagining um, the process and it's all you think about. I can only imagine how other people, um, how much they, time they must spend thinking about the process, but there's so much emotion. I think I, I certainly invested a lot of emotional energy into that surrogate um, or that potential surrogate being our carrier um, and, and having the relationship, you learn so much about them through the process of going through the selection and talking to them. So I think that was probably the byproduct of us really being so eager that we were a bit disappointed. Um, you know, it's, I would rather know upfront that someone is not going to be um, willing to be the surrogate than go, you know, going further down the, the journey and, and that path together. So I think it turned out to be a blessing, but it, I remember at the time I was disappointed as well. I think we were, we were pretty crushed because, you know, being in Australia and um, the US, the time difference, every morning you wake up and you see an email or you get a notification about something. So I, you know, you go to bed at night and you look forward to the morning because you think, Oh, am I going to get a notification or is there going to be something positive about our experience? And um, I think it's just that heightened sense of, um, you know, the, the whole process, you know, it's, it's all that emotion. It's all that, that passion and, you know, excitement just rolled in. Yeah. Um, so we were, quite fortunate that it only took a couple probably a month I would say um for us to kind of finally get to our third surrogate that we absolutely adored and um had a really great bond with um instantly her and her husband were the same age as, as Rob and I um they were just about to go to Italy um for a wedding and we had just got engaged in Italy um so it kind of felt like we knew her and you know, her, her um, kind of life mirrored our life in Australia. Um, so in June, we, um, we signed up with uh, our surrogate. And again, I think that expectation that, yep, we're going to be pregnant in a month. Um, well, you were doing all the dates. I think you'd planned it out in probably the first Skype call. No, you know, if you didn't get the hint from this call, Sam's very organized and uh, he knows his dates and timelines. But um, yeah, I think, 
you do start planning it out. You certainly did. Yeah, and I think that's when, again, the the reality that it, it's not that simple um, kicked in. So um, obviously our surrogate needed to go through, um, you know, her own treatments. We had to start with um, the hormone injections. We had to make sure that um, her body was ready to receive an embryo and not only receive it um, physically, but, you know, make sure that once the embryo was transferred that, we had a high chance of that embryo sticking um, and kind of turning uh, into a, you know, a fetus and a, a child. So June kind of July, August felt like things were going really slow. Um, we, everything had gone really fast up until that point. And then um, it was really out of our control. We just had to sit back and, and wait. Um, I remember late August, um, so our surrogate, we were kind of working with her, um, her cycle and we were ready for a September transfer. And unfortunately she hadn't started, uh, one of her hormone injections. And because there was a miscommunication with the agency that we had signed up with, um, they weren't providing, um, a, a legal release, I think it was called, um, for the clinic to provide the medication that was required. And um, again, to Rob's earlier point, trying to navigate that through the US and it was a weekend and who do we call, who do we talk to? We really needed medication to be sent out that night. Um, was really the worst 48 hours I've had in this whole process because if we missed that cycle, it meant that we weren't going to get um, the transfer done until October. Um, and that would be another four weeks that we'd have to wait. I remember that. I think you were, you know, you put so much pressure on this timeline. Um, and, you know, I think that, that this is one of the differences between Australia and, and having a baby in the States is that, you know, money talks in America. If you, we paid for that medicine to be, I think, FedExed over and it was done within like an hour. Um, you know, good luck getting anything in Australia, um, you know, within the week. Um, so I think it, that was really different. Um, I, I know instantly I found that their capability and their, um, the, you know, the fact that they could do that so quickly, I'm not sure what it's like for people in Australia trying to get medication, but that was, that was super fast, I thought. And, you know, it was a long period of time there, the winter months back home in, in Australia. And I remember they dragged every day we would be, wondering what was going to go on or what was going to be happening. So I think it was kind of that light at the end of the tunnel. We pegged so much hope on having an August transfer because um, that was kind of like the, you know, the bright shining um, light at the end of the tunnel, I guess, for us through winter. Yeah. And a lot of it um, relied on what we had already provided to the agency. So the, the holdup was that that was still waiting for a certain amount of funds from us um, to kind of push the green light. We thought the funds weren't um, required until we were actually pregnant. And so um, I think that communication was really something that we, um, we didn't drop the ball on, but, you know, going through this, this journey with an agency overseas based in Australia, not knowing what we need to do and what's kind of uh, relied on other people, um, was harder so just being able to find how we can get money overseas quickly uh, was a struggle i think it's the time zones as well and the the emails that come through there's so many emails and like this is all after hours um you miss them there's so many that and you kind of think oh you know shit did i not see that email or did we miss that and um yeah it, it can be it can get away from you and um there's just bits that kind of 
you know, life goes on, right? And sometimes you just you miss something. So I think we were kicking ourselves a bit that we might have missed um, that along the way. Yeah. So I flew over to the States, um, to Los Angeles again, first week of September. We made a decision that one of us wanted to be there or should be there for the transfer, for luck, for... Um, we thought we, it was good good juju Yeah, if one of us came over for it. We'd never met our surrogate. Um, so oh, yeah, there was that too. <laughs> yeah, well, we'd, we'd, we'd met her, obviously, um, through phone conversation, but never met her face-to-face. So, um, we, yeah, I decided... Um, you did a FIFO. I did. I went mm. to the States for three days, which was an interesting trip because I can't remember what time zone I was on by the time I got back. Um, so we had our transfer on the 6th of September. Um, and again, being oblivious to kind of how that whole process worked, it was it was over in two seconds, I think. Um, you know, our, our surrogate, I was fortunate enough to be in the room with her. We went in. Um, they brought the embryo in and then kind of before I blinked my eyes, um, it was already kind of inserted. So um, the waiting game was probably the hardest part after that day. Um, our surrogate was really eager to to want to do pregnancy tests, even though it's highly um, recommended not to do pregnancy tests because um, obviously the amount of hormones that um, she was on could give a false positive. Um, you can set yourself up for... A lot of disappointment um, at that stage. And so she started doing pregnancy tests as early as three days, I think. Uh, Um, And so every day we would get a new WhatsApp um, image that, you know, I I think we tried to convince ourselves that the line was there um, at three days. And um, I just remember the anxiety. Like I just was so nervous. And then you'd, you'd, you'd start... I, I feel I felt like I was imagining a line appearing. I don't know if I was going cross-eyed, just looking at the pregnancy test, but you just you just are wishing, and then you think, oh, is this a line? Is that not a line? Um, our our surrogate was so eager to um, start taking the pregnancy test and to be pregnant, and and I think as well because we, we were talking on WhatsApp a fair bit. You know, she was saying to us, "I feel pregnant. I feel pregnant." I, I thought, oh, you know, please don't get our hopes up. Um, you know, with this, it, that I reckon that was the most tense I've been the whole time because you just, you know, we Sam had gone over um, to the states for the transfer, and um, you know, you've just got a lot of emotion riding on it. Like I said, you just you really wanted to be positive. Yeah, I remember looking at the, I think it was the seven day pregnancy test, and I could have sworn that the three day one looked darker than the seven. I reckon one. we spent hours debating it. Yeah. Um, Anyway, obviously we're here now and expecting a child. So um, when we did finally get the official pregnancy test, um, we were pregnant and um, it was, yeah, probably the the happiest day. Yeah, it was unreal. Like I just think it was a dream come true for us. Um, And it was, was, I can't even really describe it. I'm Mm. sure anyone that's had a positive pregnancy test, you know, that they they certainly um, were happy to see would understand the feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of I'm actually really fascinated because a lot of your story and the emotions that you're talking about is exactly the emotions that we go through when we go through fertility treatment. It's identical. So, yeah. you know, like the positive pregnancy tests. I mean, I'm sure like I could show you pictures like I've laid them all out on the bench, you know, like um, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. So 
um, congratulations on your baby. Sorry, I was getting really emotional listening to you guys talk, <laughs> and I started to cry. So I, just... Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, like, as soon as you said, like, as soon as you started talking, um, Rob, about um, just you coming out and realising that you might not be able to have a family, like, that just gets me every single time because it's just, oh, my God, listen to me. Um, I feel like it's really unfair, you know, and I just gets me so angry and so upset for you guys and I'm so happy that it's all worked out. Um, but, yeah, it just gets me so emotional because I just think it's really unfair. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, have to think ourselves a lot because um, if we're not – paving the way for same-sex um, couples to start families or to go through this process. But, um, you know, more often than not, there's, there's a little bit of judgment when you speak to people that you can just sense. Um, you know, people, I kind of alluded to it before, think that you're playing God. Um, we have a lot of support around us, but we still feel that, um, you know, at the back of people's minds, I still think, you know, is this necessarily right, what you're doing? I think there's just so many stereotypes as well, you know, not, um, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, painting everyone with the same brush. But I think, you know, being from a small country town, um, there's a stereotype around gay people. And, you know, I've, I've just been really lucky to have found Sam and to have been able to embark on this journey to have a family and, you know, build our life together. But I think when you have people who, you know, have a fixed mindset around same-sex marriage or, you know, same-sex unions and, you know, or even and then you add on top of that having a baby by surrogate, um, it, it, it does make you uncomfortable. There is a certain part of me that always holds back saying that we are having a baby. Um, I, there's just there's a part of me that worries about what they might say and because I've said it before, we're so emotionally invested in our family and having this child that you just don't want them to say something that you're not going to be happy with or that I'm going to feel uncomfortable about. I just think I, I hold that re- I hold myself really guarded there. And, yeah. You know, people people will give you their opinion, right? They um they love to um say what they think and um sometimes uh, you know they're they're certainly entitled to their opinion, but whether it's what you really want to hear is another thing. Yeah, I know. You know, some people also kind of look at it as it's a bit easier. For us, mm. um, you know, we've just paid a lot of money and kind of are getting a child, and it's absolutely not the case because, um, you know, the, the financial impact is one thing, and we're obviously unfortunate enough to be able to to financially go through this process. Um, but we also miss out on on everything else as well. We don't get the, you know, the added benefit of seeing our child grow. We don't get the the benefit of being able to touch or feel or um, just the, the, you know, I'd welcome a cranky partner, you know, I've got Rob, but you know, you know, although I love the, my sleep, but... the, the mood swings and the cravings and just, just all that little stuff that I think people take for granted that we, you know, have gone eight months now of not really being able to, we don't have the luxury of being able to fly into state or kind of go down the road. Um, if we were doing this process mm. through Australia, um, and people say to us as well, like, oh, you're so lucky, you know, you guys can go out and party and stuff. And I think, oh, well, it's not really what we do anyway. Like, we actually are sitting at home on the couch with our dog. Like, we're not wild people. We're having a family. So, 
you know, I think, you know, there is a little bit of a stigma. I think that people kind of make out like we're getting away. You know, obviously we don't have physically have to carry the baby. So there is that part that is easier for us. But the emotional side that we do miss out on, you know, it's hard. I think, um, you know, I would love to have been able to see the baby grow and be able to touch it and hear it in the belly and, and so on. But we don't get that. And look, that's the reality. Um, we're still, you know, really blessed. But there's other elements I think that people kind of um, minimise because um, they think it, yeah, if you if you can pay for it and it's easier, then, yeah, good on you. Just, like, in regards to that, how was the reaction from your friends and your family? Like, were they supportive? What Were there a lot of questions? Because, like, as Amy said at the start, we both had to do some reading and get our heads around it as well. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, I would say it's, on a whole it's been pretty positive. I'll talk maybe a little bit about my family and, and my friends. I think, um, like you mentioned, there is not a lot of information about surrogacy, so people naturally have a lot of questions, which we love. We could talk about it for the next, I don't know, month, right? We're just really passionate about it. I think if there's any way that we can help educate other people, we certainly would want to do that because there isn't a lot of information. And if we can help people, um, you know, by talking about our journey and our experience, I hope that people have confidence to know that they can potentially start doing that as well. I think my family, um, it's been a bit of a mixed reaction, I think because they don't understand. Um, my mum's been fantastic. Um, I think my dad and my brother, you know, I don't know if they are the kind of type to ask the questions. I think that that stiff upper lip, um, you know, mum will probably just translate it all for them anyway. So I think that that has been hard. Sometimes having expectations of what you would expect if you were going through a normal pregnancy um you know if I'd gotten married and had a baby in a heterosexual relationship would it be would they be a little bit different and I think I overcook that in my mind a bit um and I think about that a lot and so having the expectations is you know that's one part that that can be challenging I think our friend my friends have been relatively um supportive um I, I think people don't really know what to ask and I think they feel a bit uncomfortable you know do they think you know did we get someone overseas to be the mother and have um, and carry the baby? I think that's the, the general question we get all the time or I get all the time. And, um, you know, you'll get some questions like, oh, who's, whose kid is it? Um, so which one of you is the, the father? And I think, oh, well, we're both the dads. It doesn't really matter about blood um, or genetics. You know, whether that baby's Sam or whether it's mine, it's still our baby. You know, we're going to love it no matter what. So I think it's just sometimes questions born out of not knowing um, can be a bit jarring. And I think on the whole, people are uncomfortable to ask questions that they don't want to offend you either. So, you know, it, it's just something so different. I don't think I know anyone else that's had a baby via surrogate in Australia. Um, so I probably would be in the same boat. Um, but I, I personally love talking about it. Yeah, I think that the two biggest things that people are fixated on is whose whose child is it? <laughs> yeah. um, and to Rob's point, you know, it, it's both our child, irrespective of um, who genetically um, conceived it. The second one is around how can the mum give the child away um, because yeah. they just can't differentiate that the surrogate and the egg donor are yeah. two different people. And um, you know, by all means, we we we. we We'll talk about it till kind of the ends of um, the ends of the days, but I think that people just aren't able to separate that it's it's two separate um, 
uh, people. It's two separate processes. And our surrogate, and one of the main reasons why we chose um, her is that she's not doing this financial for, for a financial benefit. Yes, yeah, yeah. she's, she's getting paid, and that's the, obviously the, the commercial surrogacy that we've opted for. Um, but she's doing it because she just wants to give someone a child. Um, and, you know, people still find that really hard, that mm. how can someone carry a child and then give it up? Um, she's just so passionate. And, uh, and that is one of the reasons, I think, when you think about, you know, trying to make a decision over Skype and talking to someone about carrying your child, you know, it was the passion and the sincerity she talked about wanting to be a surrogate that I think made us go with, her as as our choice because god you know it's so hard to put your faith in someone and they could say anything you really have to trust them but she just spoke about that so much yeah um yeah definitely came through as a whole i think my my family and friends um have been really supportive i think they've known how much it's it's meant to me to Mm. to start a family um it's really hard you get really protective over um not only the process but you know our, our, our daughter that's on the way that little comments and little kind of things that you hear um it's hard to ignore them and so um you know i think that that concept about is it 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 is a child and yes it's kind of um it's your child but is it really kind of something that you've conceived um it is probably hard for me to to process because um you know i don't think that you know anyone in our life um is small-minded but just to be able to absorb that we have you know created this child is sometimes hard and kind of just through conversation people are um, unable to accept that just because we haven't conceived it the natural way it is still our child the the playing god comment kind of that that i find hard sometimes because you already feel a little bit self-conscious sometimes that you're a same-sex couple having a baby but then to say that we're playing god does you know it's a little bit it's a hard thing to say. And for anyone that's gone through an IVF process or through surrogacy, you're not playing God, right? Like you're just trying to have a family any way you can. So I think it's just an education piece, but there are comments sometimes that they just land, depends on the day, depends on what else you're going through. I, I find that hard. And sometimes when, the, when your family says that, you think, ah, oh, or they might've dropped a comment. You, you kind of think, ah, oh, of all the people in my life, I really would have thought you probably didn't think I'm playing God. I'm actually just trying to have a family. And, you know, it, it you got to roll with it, but mm. yeah. I think um, a lot of, you know, just about what you were saying just then, about how can the mum you know, give the baby away? I think a lot of that comes down to societal constructs of gender and, you know, like just they're not thinking about it, like the fact that she's not technically not the mother, she's the birth parent and that doesn't necessarily mean the genetic material is hers like the baby is hers and I think you know people get this idea about you know the mother Madonna type you know um all sacrificing woman and if you don't feel that that stereotype of a mother then you know you're not a mother so I think I find that really interest that comment really interesting because I think it speaks to a lot about people's assumptions about what mothers and how parents are perceived. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's sort of what I was thinking as you were talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, kind of just to expand on that, the the, the titles as well yeah. around kind of 
you know, who's mum and who's dad. Yeah, we were yeah. looking at um, baby books and baby journals and kind of we wanted to start something for our little one that we could give her, you know, when she was older and everything was kind of mum, dad, mum, dad. And we're just yeah. like, you know, it, it, that's a conversation we're going to have to have at some stage yeah. um, with our daughter. But I think society still looks at a family as mum and dad. What is it, the, the two and a half kids and the dog or yeah. whatever it is. So I just... Um, yeah, that the mum and dad thing that that can be uncomfortable, and all the parenting books talk about making the mum comfortable. And I think, oh well, we could play the role, but it's probably not going to be relevant for us. <laughs> um, yeah, it it and it's interesting you say that, right? Because even when um, you know Sam was taking Sam's applied to take parental leave from work, um, we're really lucky that he's been able to do that. But it was very much around, well, why is he taking parental leave? It was like the reverse. Um, like I said to, to Sam, I can only imagine how women feel when they go through um, putting in an application for maternity leave, the the pressure for the career and the and, and this strange, I, I would I don't even know how to describe it. I'm sure many women could, but the, it was like this guilt that you were taking, you were applying to take the parental leave around, well, what, what's your partner doing? And well, we're both guys, right? So one of us has got to take parental leave. It's not like we've um, you know, that we can both stay home. But it was a really interesting reverse um, experience, I think. And, and and Sam did get a bit of heat, I, I felt, um, for applying for parental leave because he's a guy. Um, and I think for those who didn't realise that he was in a same-sex relationship, it was like, well, why is, why is your wife not staying home? My husband copped that a lot when he, because he applied for a month off. Um, I wanted a long period of time. It's a big transition for a family, as you guys are aware, um, you know, to go from a couple to having a third person in your relationship. It's huge. And his, I should be careful with what I'm saying, but um, his workplace was not was not happy about that. And um, so he actually ended up going in on some days. And, you know, I remember just feeling so deserted but it's the whole it's just that whole aspect of the expectation being on the mother um to to look after the child and it's kind of like society's expectations are changing now you know and like you said it's not just heterosexual couples anymore that are having children it's same sex and you know even you know non-binary people and single mothers by choice and things like that so I think that sort of conception or that perception about families needs to sort of start to shift as well yeah I think we have experienced like you mentioned um, a number of different elements of the gender role reversal and the um, society's pressures to conform to a certain um, stereotype around the gender role um, I, I think We've, I mean, on the whole, it's been positive, but yeah, there are elements where you think, oh, that is not going to work for us. Yeah, even outside of that, I think that just people being able to appreciate that we're not even in Australia, we're not in Australia now, we've been in the States for close to six weeks now, um, we're going to have a child here and it's not as simple as, yeah, just pack up the family and move back to Australia, there's a, a whole process, our daughter's going to be born an American citizen, so how do we actually get back into Australia, what's the the visa requirements is it safe to travel with a child that's that's young you know um you know th um, that takes time and it's not just as simple as you know oh take a week off work and then go back to work because it's it's not that easy we're actually yeah. you know packing up our lives from australia moving here packing up our lives here moving back to australia and i don't know about other people but i have got mad anxiety about driving on the other side of the road with a baby in the car so i just think that's something that i think about all the time as well but 
yeah, no, it's it is different being over here. It's um, yeah, it's a sacrifice, but it's worth it. It's just it is not um, you know, conceptually, it's really easy to say, yeah, we're going overseas, we're getting pick up the baby, and it's going to be this. But you know, with you know coronavirus um and everything else, it's yeah, it's it's been crazy. It's it, it's just you have to be so chilled all the time um, because otherwise you're going to give yourself a minor conviction, I reckon. Did you want to talk about like your process for selecting the egg donor and the surrogate at all? Or um, I think with the egg donor, it, and I don't want this to come across as being shallow, but a lot of it was around the characteristics because we, we didn't have the, you don't have the opportunity to um, speak to every single donor that's presented to you. Um, so we went through and, um, we really looked at backgrounds, so um, educational background, what their interests and hobbies were. Um, we tried to eliminate the um, physical aspect of uh, what she looked like. Um, I won't lie, I, I, I'm obviously, uh, I'm Lebanese, Rob is um, half Dutch, half Australian. So we did want an egg donor that would complement both of us, obviously both having um, biological children. Um, so that played an element of it. I think the health part was the big one for us. Like I remember, and this is going to sound a bit, might sound a bit judgmental, but one of the, the egg donors had ADHD. Now I, as a child, was quite hyperactive and I started to think about, oh, if we mix those two together, is the child going to be climbing the walls and the curtains, right? Like, so you want to make sure you do have a complement of um, genetics. And I remember that specifically being something that I thought about, you know, I, I didn't want to necessarily mix that together um but i think that was that was a big one making sure that it was a healthy egg donor and no medical history i mean these days everyone's got something um in their family history but yeah that was probably the, the big one for me you just want to have a healthy baby yeah i think yeah as we've spoken about earlier the you know so much more about yourself um and the person that you're going to conceive this child with going through um this process, um, everything is put out on the table. And so being able to understand not only the egg donor's um, medical background, but her family's medical background, mm. her extended family's medical background um, was really important because, you know, it, it's it's an emotional process. It's a, um, you know, a process that takes its toll on you. And so what we really wanted to achieve um, at the end of it was not, you know, a large number of embryos that were going to look beautiful, but we wanted, a, you know, a, a healthy number of embryos that had the most, um, you know, the highest chance of succeeding um, going through this process and taking into consideration that medical aspect um, was really important. Can I just say as well that um, even though we're in a same-sex relationship and I'm sure a lot of other um, heterosexual couples find this but quite often you don't agree on the, everything in life together so the fact that we had to then go through the list and find what we agreed on and what were our non-negotiables um, I'm sure you can imagine the conversation but we really had to come to a consensus about what we really wanted out of an egg donor and what we really wanted out of a surrogate um, and you know that can be really confronting that's a really upfront and honest conversation that you have to have um yeah I, I remember that there are a few things that we just wouldn't budge on but you know we got there and I think you know I was really proud that we were able to make a decision but yeah it's um it's a lively conversation yeah the surrogate um I think was probably a, a harder decision we the first surrogate that we were presented because we were so excited that 
mm -hmm. was happening, we, we said yes, and we probably said yes a little too soon. And um, I think for anyone who's listening to this or anyone who is planning on going through this journey, it's okay to say no would be the, the advice that I would give. And mm. that's the decision we made. Um, you, don't wanna, a, you don't want to upset them. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to say, no, we don't want you when you've been presented to us. I think that was part of it as well. Yeah. And I think that was probably the, the hardest thing for us to, um, to come to terms with with the second surrogate that we were presented is that it, it killed us because we just did not feel comfortable, but we, mm. we, we just knew that it was not the right um, match for us and kind of it took us a, a good week I think to to be able to tell the agency that we weren't going to proceed and because we didn't I remember that we didn't want to say no when someone had been generous in putting themselves up for the program but and and I think we didn't want to hurt that person by saying that it wasn't the right fit for us how you phrase that we just I think we had to think about how we were going to do that and um you know, then there's that other element around, well, how long is it going to take until another surrogate comes up? They don't grow on trees. So you just, you, there's a number of different elements you're considering at the same time. Yeah. You almost, you know, and we didn't feel obliged, but you've almost got this sense of obligation that you have to say yes, because, um, you know, if you say no to Rob's point, how long is it going to be before another surrogate is found? Um, however, I think that, it was, it was definitely the right decision and irrespective of how long um, the next surrogate was to be matched with us, I, I'm, I'm really happy that we, we found the, the confidence to be able to, to say that we just weren't, we weren't comfortable already with that, that choice. Um, would you guys just like to explain for people who, you know, are listening and have no idea, would you guys just like to explain the difference between altruistic and commercial surrogacy for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. So um, altruistic surrogacy is essentially where there's um, no exchange of, of money. Um, it's probably the easiest way for me to explain it. So um, in Australia, commercial surrogacy is illegal. Um, however, altruistic surrogacy isn't. So to be able to go through altruistic surrogacy, you need to have um, a female who's willing and able to carry a child for you. Um, generally, that's a, a friend, it's a family member, someone who's um, previously had their own children. So it can't be um, someone who hasn't conceived a child before. Um, you can't pay them um, to do it. However, um, you are responsible for all the legal bills and, and fees um, associated with having that child. Um, that would have been a very easy option for us and definitely one that we would have been open to just because um, the proximity, um, being in Australia, having access to Medicare, yeah. um, knowing that we, we live in a country that actually has some really great um, medical advances. Um, but unfortunately, we just didn't have anyone in our lives who was able to, to provide that for us. It's an extremely personal thing. I don't think you can ask someone to do it um, or you could, but it, it, you'd have to have a really special person and a special relationship. I think we, we probably just weren't at that stage. I, you know, I, I found it really interesting in this process that even still in Australia, that international commercial surrogacy is illegal in all states except for Victoria and South Australia. So even coming back um, with a baby born through international surrogacy through a commercial arrangement, you can only enter via those two states, um, which we learnt when we met with an immigration lawyer, which I thought was really interesting. So we have still got, you know, if 
there's so many limitations even on commercial surrogacy overseas coming back into Australia. I, I just think we've got so um, such a long way to go for um, altruistic yeah. or commercial surrogacy. Back um, the last thing on altruistic surrogacy is that the surrogate is um, the birth mother um, on the birth certificate. Commercial surrogacy, um, how it differs essentially is that you're paying a service um, or you're paying someone to essentially be the carrier of your child. So the surrogate um, is paid uh, a fee. And so we've decided to go through commercial surrogacy with an agency just because we felt that it was safer. Mm -hmm. It's governed. Um, there is contracts in place. There's um, you know legal binding documents that essentially declare us as the, the parents. The other reason um, or the other the benefit of commercial surrogacy is that where we are, where our surrogate is based, we are actually both the parents um, on the birth certificate. So we're both listed as um, the parents um, and not the surrogate. So that's probably the, the, the core difference between the two. Um, commercial surrogacy, um, you know, is, is available in, in many countries. Um, you know, when we started doing our research, there were options in, uh, well, India and Thailand had, uh, they just stopped it. Yeah. Um, there were places like Mexico, um, some places in Europe, the UK. I think um, I think Poland or Croatia is really big now, and I think Canada yeah. might do it as well. Yeah, um, and the reason why we chose America, obviously, um, because of not our association, but just the comfort level, knowing that um, it was a language we spoke, we were comfortable getting around. Um, and just the, that ability to be able to communicate with the agency that we chose. Yeah. Yep. Um, in Australia, you can't know the sex of your embryos before you transfer. So I was wondering, being in America, I know that that is like an option. So uh, were you guys aware of the sex when you transferred the embryo? Yeah, we, we've got a grading list of all of our embryos. Um, they tell you the grade along with the gender of the embryo as well. Um, it's got the stage, it's got everything like it's, it's really detailed, but we knew what the gender um, of the baby was going to be when we did the transfer. When we, um, so the 11 embryos that we had after they gone through their um, five and seven day cycles, we decided to do um, pre genetic testing on all of them. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm not too sure how the, the IVF journey is um, or the processes in Australia, but for us, it was it, it, a big chunk of the the financial element of it um, was the the IVF fertility um, side of things. So the egg donor, the fertility clinic, etc. Um, so we had to pay um, a significant amount of money to do the pre genetic testing, but um, it's it's something that we don't regret because that placed us where we are today in knowing exactly which embryos we had um, that were viable, which ones that weren't viable, um, and that grading system. Um, so uh, it a big element of kind of what we've had to go through is that people think that we chose the sex of our child and we manipulated the embryos, if you like. Um, again, that, that stigma around people not understanding um, exactly what happens, but we didn't um, genetically choose the, the embryos. Um, we just happened to know exactly what each of those sexes um, was um, for all of them. 
Yep. So you bet you chose the embryo based off the grading rather than the the sex of the, the embryo. Yeah, definitely. Because we had um, two very high graded eggs, one male, one female, and we went with the highest of the grade. And, and like we said, it didn't matter whose it was biologically. It was about having the best chance of viability and becoming a successful embryo, embryo transplant. Yeah, we went into the, the process with that um, mindset that it was never about one having a child first, a biological child first. It was about you know, we, we really just want to make sure that the decision we make, um, you know, is, is a strong one. And um, by chance, the, the strongest egg that we had um, was a female. Thank you. Um, did you guys just want to also run through um, how the coronavirus has impacted this leg of your journey just because um that's how we came across you guys was on instagram and the comment that you'd made on virgin's um post and yeah so would you mind just running through that if you if you feel comfortable yeah um well sam's very active on the socials um so he can probably talk a bit about that i think for us look um Hindsight is 2020. Um, we thought we had everything planned out and then, you know, coronavirus hit and everything, you know, was balls to the wall, really. Um, we just, you know, everything just went up. Um, and so I think I was home from work and I got a notification on the ABC website that Virgin had cancelled all of their flights. And I remember calling Sam crying. I think I was so um, stressed uh, to say, you know, oh shit, we're not going to get over for the birth of our baby. What's going to happen? Um, he was in the middle of a meeting. Um, I think he said, oh, look, I'll call you back. I'm just going to, I'll get on top of it. And then I think I started calling the embassies um, to try and work out um, if we could get extended visas because we're on an ESTA waiver, which is 90 days. Um, and you don't want to overstay um, with our friends at Border Patrol here in the States. So I was trying to get that. All of the embassies were closed. Um, you know, Virgin weren't answering their phones. The airlines weren't answering. So it was, um, it, it did get stressful. So to put, to put all that into perspective, that was Wednesday morning, um, and we were on a flight Saturday morning to the US. Um, so we literally had 48 hours to... Um, to pack up our lives and head over. Um, we thought we were planned and ready to go and ready to kind of welcome a child. And I think it was the day before I was doing a mad rush, um, trying to find onesies and clothes for the baby. And um, and then, of course, with everyone hoarding everything, there was no baby formula or wipes or anything. So, you know, we didn't have any of that sort of stuff to take with us. So I think I was driving around trying to look for supermarkets that had some supplies for us because we legitimately did need them but everyone had in their um you know i guess in the panic had taken them yeah i think that the, the frustration definitely that came through um on the, the post to virgin was that we i get it the whole world is yeah. facing into the same challenges that we are but we weren't rebooking a cruise and we weren't rebooking a family trip or a holiday we, were, we actually had a plan. We, we had a flight booked to the US because we were expecting a child. And I just think that the, all these organizations um, kind of that have had to face into to customer service are probably just missing that element of, um, you know, consideration that some people aren't just wanting a refund or are worried about, you know, when's my next flight going to be? We had a legitimate reason to fly over to the US and, 
Um, we had absolutely no idea how that was going to work. Um, to Rob's point about the embassies, we contacted the embassy um, straight away and we were just welcomed with a, you know, well, you, you can come back on the 25th of May when we reopen and that's the day our daughter's due. So we were like, like, are you kidding us? Like, we, we don't know what to do and um, we had to just make a decision and um, a decision that we don't regret. It's been challenging, obviously, being we're away from our family, our friends, our dog for three months. Um, we don't even know if we're going to get back into the country. Um, and that's because of the uh, US passport controllers closed over here. So we don't know if um, they're going to be able to issue passports and documentation for our baby once she's born. So I think it's just there's so many unknown elements. Um, yeah, we just made it. We made the decision to go. And I remember being on the Saturday at Melbourne airport, um, you know, it was crazy. And we were saying to the lady at the counter, you know, we're going to the stage and she was saying, oh, we, oh, I think that they might've canceled the Esters. And I remember I was so tense and look, Sam was really strong and really calm throughout it. There's always got to be one, right? But, um, you know, it just, it, it did feel like we were left a little bit in the lurch. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there in the same kind of boat that have had their plans disrupted. I just think it was, we just had to make a lot of reactive decisions and yeah. it worked out fortunately for us. We're over here. We're blessed to have gotten over here. It's a bit of a compromise, but you know, who wouldn't compromise for, for their baby? Right? It was almost like a checklist. So kind of first we found the, I think it was the last flight leaving Melbourne over to the States before the official travel ban was introduced. Um, Melbourne airport, they're checking staff telling us that we couldn't fly, even though, you know, we'd done our due diligence and we knew that we were still able to fly. Yeah. Then we had a, an 18 hour flight. We flew in via San Francisco to LA, um, not knowing if immigration in the U S was going to let us into the country. Obviously they'd shut their borders to China and Italy already. Um, so that was a, probably the, the sleep, most sleepless flight I've ever had, not knowing if we were going to get in. We got to border control and then um, we printed out everything, fortunately, all of our documents and, and so on, yeah. um, which is so lucky. Uh, we don't normally travel with all of our documents, but we had printed everything. Um, yeah, they wanted to see kind of the contract with the surrogate. They wanted to see um, the fact that we were paying for the medical bills in America. And they're really big on not using their medical system, <laughs> even though it's not, not that great. Um uh, on top of that, they wanted to see a return flight home. So one of the things that we, before we booked the flights to come over was whether we just booked a one-way flight or return to save a bit of money. Um, and we decided to book a return flight. And don't ask us why we decided to do that. We just said, let's just book it. And if we lose money, we lose money. Um, Thank God. But if we had booked a one-way flight, they were going to reject our entry into the US because they want to see that you're leaving within 90 days. Um, and I don't think it was until we got through immigration and we got our bags that we, we kind of, I said to Rob, you have to kiss the ground in the States, which is disgusting. Um, but once we're in, we're in, right? Like, yeah, it's, we're not trying to breach any laws or um, stay here longer than we are. But once we made it through into the country, we knew that we were safe and we knew that we were going to be here for the, the birth of our daughter. Obviously, going through surrogacy, um, if we miss the birth, the surrogate doesn't actually assume any rights. Um, so, yeah, it goes into foster care. yeah, it goes into foster care. Um, the hospitals don't necessarily no. have to look after it. So, again, all that kind of emotion running through about if we were to miss the birth, what would actually happen to our child? And 
the agency that we signed off with, as good as they are, was kind of recommending family to come and look after it. And, you know, how, how are you going to get people over to West Virginia in America to look after it if we can't even get here? So yeah. um, it's been, an, you know, if I could curse the, the coronavirus more, I would. Um, it's definitely put a, you know, it's the fork in the road that we didn't expect. Um, we're still really fortunate though. I think, you know, like our accommodations being um, cancelled a few times, we've moved, I reckon about four times over here. Um, it's just, you know, you've just got to roll with it, but it's, it's been an adventure. Um, we're lucky we made it over, but yeah, far out. If we, you had told us 12 months ago or when we started the process that we were going to kind of face into these headwinds, I certainly wouldn't have expected it. I mean, we didn't expect it. We had a baby shower on the, late February and I don't think we were even thinking it then it just kind of all happened in the space of two weeks it just you know it all went to shit and we um yeah we had to get over here really quickly I think the whole world has just melted down you know like even just Australia you know they've just reinstated IVF to be allowed and just that whole aspect that whole added aspect of stress for you guys just I think, you know, by the sounds of it, your fertility journey story is fairly straightforward in a lot of aspects. But then as soon as you hit this, it's just like, that's where all your stress has come from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, you know, we had a plan to fly over with a six-week-old. Um, and even then, we were, we were still mm-hmm. kind of nervous about, you know, how early is too early to fly with a, with a child. Now, based on the, because we had to come here three months earlier or two months earlier, um, our baby, if she arrives on her, her due date, will be three and a half weeks. Um, so that is kind of giving us mad anxiety because neither of us is comfortable. We're first-time parents and, and flying home with the child so young. During a pandemic. During a pandemic. Um, we don't know if it's safe. And then we... We have to go to a hotel for two weeks. Yeah. Like, we just don't... You know, there's so many things. Yeah. We're just going to cross that bridge when we get to it. I just... so, yeah. So, you know, at the moment, we, we are contemplating running the risk of just overstaying our um, visa. We're, we're trying to find a way to get it extended. Um, but our daughter's safety, I think, is, is paramount at this stage. And so if we're not comfortable flying back um, on that date, then we need to revisit it. Um, we... we we don't even know what's happening with our return flight, to be honest with you, because um, as you would have seen in my frustration to Virgin, um, it's impossible to speak to anyone at the moment. I think, um, you know, even though you've said you're first-time parents, I think any decision that you guys make is going to be the right one for your family. So I think, you know, as first-time parents, sometimes you have to just trust your gut with what you're doing because, I mean, let's face it, none of us fucking know what we're doing. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing and my baby's nearly two. Like, oh, that's a relief. Yeah, each day it's like, oh, she's alive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like you guys will make the right decision for your family and definitely you guys sound like you work together really well. You're a good unit um, to very resilient people to sort of have this hurdle and just overcome it. So I think you guys should be really proud of yourselves for that too. Is there anything else you guys would like to add before we wrap it up? Um, I think we've kind of shared everything. I know that for us, and, and thank you to both of you for giving us the opportunity to, to share our story. Um, it, it was really just important for us to to be able to show that, you know, the the IVF and 
kind of fertility process is, is different for everyone. Um, there's, you know, highs and lows and, um, you know, different opportunities uh, that kind of present themselves. But, um, yeah, just, you know, really important to be able to kind of, you know, even if it's just to educate two more people about our process um, and our journey and um, and share that, it was really valuable. Mm. Yeah, look, and I, I think that for anyone that is looking to um, start a family, whether it be through traditional IVF or through surrogacy, um, you know, I think, um, yeah, just explore it. Um, where if you whether you're doing it alone or whether you're doing it in a, a partnership, um, I think it's an amazing experience that, um, you know, it's a very different experience than what you would go through, I think, through a normal um, conception and, and birth um, pregnancy process. And I think it's something that we should all stick together and help each other with because, um, yeah, the more support there is for people, you know, it, I think that's so important around breaking down some stigmas as well. Um, that are out there yeah and there's i think you know there, there's no there's no right or wrong if i if i could kind of reflect on the last 10 years it would be to just ask more questions document a lot more of what i had learned um you know if it's if it's a process for australia that you want to try ask people don't be ashamed to kind of um admit that you cannot conceive a child naturally mm -hmm. um reach out to people and i think the one thing i've learned definitely during this this current pandemic is that you know don't be ashamed to whether it's on instagram or whether it's kind of through an email just to ask someone for as little advice as um you know you need about either the process or just a question or because it's that information that that's really valuable and i think what you guys um are definitely doing with your podcast and, and putting out there is providing a lot of support to people who might be you know scared to take that that step in asking someone and can just sit back and listen to someone's story and get a little bit of information. Or even just understanding that what they're going through, it's relatable in different mm. situations, you're not alone. And um, yeah, I think that that's a big one. Sometimes you just think you're the only person to have a baby, right? Um, but yeah, everyone's felt it before and they're probably still feeling it. So yeah, I think we should all stick together. Yeah. We, we look at this as kind of, you know, the, the saying, it takes a village to raise, raise a child. And, you know, our village is, is open to absolutely everyone and we welcome advice from anyone that wants to provide it. Like, I think this conversation has really highlighted the fact that this little community that we have, the feelings are universal. The, like, the highs that you talked about and then those low lows, we've all had those. Like, it's an experience we've all had. And those hard conversations as well between the two of you. I know my husband and I... Yeah, I'm getting emotional. But, like, you talk about things that no other parent talks about with their partner, those yeah. hard conversations and those what-ifs. And I just really want to thank you for being open and honest. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's lovely that to know that it is universal between us in this little community. Yeah, 100%. I agree. I think that's just, from my perspective, um, I just feel like educating people around this process is so important to me because of my own personal experience with people's ignorance around it and the horrid things that have been said. And so, you know, like Tiff said, I just really want to recognise that 
you know, you're thanking us, but honestly, like we can't thank you enough for being willing to put yourselves out there um, and to share your story. It just means so much to us that you're able to, and you're willing to talk about it. So thank you so much. Thanks Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like listening to the podcast and would like to share your story, we will pop the link in the show notes. Be sure to hit subscribe so when we release new episodes, it lands straight into your listen now. If you could also leave us a review for the show, that would be so appreciated. No words are needed, just stars. If you're on the Apple app, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page and tap to rate. This makes a massive difference to our show's visibility and helps us to get our show out and about to others experiencing fertility treatment. IVF Tales is an independent production made by Amy and I. Music is by Volet Gulashenko. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts.